few live outside the U.S., then the process of politics and discourse in the U.S. can seem both distant and hard to pin down. Admittedly, everyone in all countries have their own complications in their own domestic discourse and political leanings. But here I want to share with you and focus solely on the United States. There is a history here and an evolution. There are also trends for the future. But first, I want to ask you, what makes American politics unique? To me, it's not the politics itself, but the First Amendment in the U.S. Constitution. Inbred supposed constitutional right to what is perceived to be free speech. I don't mock it. I think the idea that you can slag off the government, their dear leader, and mock publicly local and national politicians is a cultural benefit that needs to be kept. It is undoubtedly a treasure. If you've listened to my past episodes, then you know, though, that I think free will and thus freedom itself is an illusion and that we are shaped by our own biases. One of the U.S. biases is the idea that there is a free speech. It's the diet everyone is fed on from day one. Freedom, rule of law, and the American dream to own your own home. Thing is, that when that trust between the citizen and the government breaks down, the individual then needs to protect themselves from the system. Thus, they created the Second Amendment, and that's the whole thing that you might know of on gun ownership. Okay, so what are the actual words of the First and Second Amendment? Let's start with the First Amendment. The actual words to the First Amendment are Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to peacefully assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. On the Second Amendment, it says, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's it. It's not that much. You can interpret that as you wish. Keep and bear arms can be anything from a knife, a gun, to, I don't know, a ballistic missile. But most people, though, assume that it is actually firearms, since that was a going concern back in the 1770s. I'm not totally sure about the newer weapons. Now, I'm not a gun owner and personally don't see the point, but I do like both these amendments. Now, don't think here about words, but think about the spirit. It tells you that you can say what you want, you can go and abuse the government, you can abuse the dear leader, and you can even protect yourself from the government. Now, this is interesting because even then, back in the 1770s, they had figured out and they were clever enough to figure out that ultimately a government can come against you, the citizen, and you need to protect yourself from that. What they hadn't figured out back in the 1770s is that maybe in the 2020s, the government can come after you in very different ways. They can send federal agents all over social media and mainstream media and actually control the mindset and thinking process of its citizens in a different way so that maybe you have the assumption of a free thought and free voice, maybe you don't actually. But okay, I'm not going to get into that. That's all semantics. Let's get back to the task at hand, which is 
this amendment, the first and second amendment, because it's so good in my view. I mean, let's just take Germany, for example. Culturally, in Germany, it's not the case. There is no first and second amendment. It's not the case in China either. Culturally, there's no first and second amendment. But in the US, there is. It's in the culture. In Germany, people are insanely trusting of their governmental system. In China, they follow the orders, but don't trust the system. They know it's corrupt. So they just sort of listen, but they know it's all BS. The US is like the China system, except that the US have the backbone to put out there that, you know what, you don't need to trust the government. You can protect yourself from the government. It has to be stated, and this is very important, that even though the United States back in the 1770s, 1780s, 1790s came up with this constitution and a First and Second Amendment in time, it didn't apply to everyone who lived on those lands. It didn't apply to blacks, black slaves at the time, or the Red Indians. And none of these people could truly participate in that perceived freedom. Indeed, Jim Crow, which I can get into a little bit later, extended the plight of black freedom a whole another century. Red Indians were screwed then, pretty much are screwed now, forgotten part of the American narrative. It's not a good thing or a bad thing, it's just a thing, it's a historical note that we have to know. I personally assume the US to have become a modern state, a democracy, a freedom-loving democracy, only after the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That's a whole 99 years after the American Civil War ended. So I'm talking about modern America, the one you and I know, the 2023 America, that's about 60 years old. Right after the Civil War, we had something called the Civil Rights Act in 1875. It's sometimes also known as the Enforcement Act, or some people also called it the Force Act. It was passed in response to civil rights violations against black Americans. The bill was signed into law by the U.S. president at the time, who was Ulysses Grant. This act was designed to protect all citizens in their civil and legal rights, providing equal treatment in public accommodation and public transportation, and prohibiting exclusion from jury service. Now, what is this Jim Crow thing? You hear that a lot. So the Jim Crow was actually a series of laws at the state and local level enforcing racial segregation, and it primarily existed in the southern U.S., other areas of the U.S. were also impacted by formal and informal policies of segregation. It was, you know, you could think of it essentially as apartheid, the same as it was in South Africa. These southern laws, and I just mean the South right now, even though there were these ancillary laws elsewhere, were enacted in the late 19th and early 20th centuries by white southern Democrat-dominated state legislatures to disenfranchise and remove political and economic gains made by African Americans during the Reconstruction era, right after the Civil War. The Jim Crow laws were introduced and enforced, and it existed right up to 1965. In case you are remotely curious, the Jim Crow character is actually a theater character that depicted black Americans in a poor, negative, slavery-ridden, subhuman state. That's what it was, and these laws basically were just given this overall umbrella terminology. Anyway, the next Civil Rights Act was passed in 1957. The Supreme Court's 1954 ruling in this case called Case of Brown v. Board of Education brought the issue of school desegregation to the fore of public attention. As Southern 
democratic leaders began a campaign of massive resistance against desegregation. In the midst of all this, President Dwight Eisenhower, who was president at the time, proposed a civil rights bill designed to provide federal protection for African-American voters. Most African-Americans in the South of the U.S. had been disenfranchised by state and local laws. So the civil rights bill got passed through Congress. Opponents of the act were able to remove or weaken civil provisions. Then came the Civil Rights Act of 1964, this being a landmark civil rights and labor law in the U.S., and it outlawed discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. It prohibited and prohibits unequal application of voter registration requirements, racial segregation in schools and public accommodations, and employment. Oh, and one more thing. The Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, which was a year later, this was a law that abolished the National Origins Formula. The National Origins Formula, and I'll get into that, had been the basis of U.S. immigration policy since the 1920s. The act removed de facto discrimination against Southern and Eastern Europeans, Asians, as well as other non-Western and Northern European ethnic groups from American immigration policy. This basically meant that if you were, say, Greek, or if you were, say, Russian, or if you were, say, Indian, or if you were, say, I don't know, Indonesian, you would have an equal way of getting from your country to the U.S. So it wasn't just people from Germany, the Nordic countries, the United Kingdom, etc., etc., etc. It broadened the immigration system into the U.S. The National Origins Formula was actually an umbrella term. It was an umbrella term for a series of immigration quotas that was used in America from 1921 to 1965. It simply restricted immigration from Eastern Hemisphere countries on the basis of national origin. Australia actually had similar laws right up to the late 1970s. So these two laws or acts in the mid-1960s changed America. And the evidence of that slowly started coming out from the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s onwards. You could see that happening in popular culture, political leadership, and corporate systems. In modern times, the United States has more people in it ethnically, civilizationally, and culturally from Latin America than from Black Africa. There are now more people of Indian, Arab, and Asian origin than before. Interracial marriages and so on is also kind of getting more commonplace and therefore changing the dynamics of society away from the traditional black and white into something a lot more nuanced. The irony, of course, is, and this is a weird thing that I always harp on about, so I'm just going to mention it. The irony is that the 1940s Jim Crow and National Origins Formula America caught the racist Nazis in Germany. Now, all it was here, well, let's think about it. You have generations of people with strong links to Northern Europe in the United States. So when Europe caught a cold in the 1940s and earlier in, in World War I, when Europe got the cold, the U.S. sneezed. Today, that's less of a case. 
the demographics has shifted away from Northern Europe and Western Europe. Anyway, I did digress, so I'm going to go back on track. All to say that the US discourse today is shaped by those two amendments, Amendment 1 and Amendment 2, these laws, and that the modern United States is a country that has this massive military, the hegemonic dollar, this Anglo history, but is changing and shifting to become a country with that same military spend, but a weaker economy and a degraded Anglo culture. So the country is changing before our very eyes. And in my mind, it is an interesting transition and one worth keeping an eye on. Let's just say you are an American with a Vietnamese, Mexican, or Jamaican background. Do you really care about Germany's security, Poland's problem, anything about anyone in Europe? It's much ado about nothing for you. The USA was an extension of Europe's northern Protestant civilization into the North American continent. It is not the case now. But the modern US has been a real modern democracy from about the mid to late 1960s. Real immigration from outside of Northwestern Europe started also only in the late 60s onward. That's the real shift. And amid that shift lies the narrative of Amendment 1 and Amendment 2. The further weird or one of the more weirder observations that I can make is that American discourse, at least on race, is still very black and white. Whites did this to blacks and blacks are oppressed. And therefore, here's the narrative. What it discounts completely in that black and white discussion, and that black and white discussion dominates America's narrative on race even today, is that really a lot of the white immigrants don't have that history. They aimed since 1965. And a lot of immigrants are from Latin America and from Asia who have no connection to those events. Indeed, even Africans who moved from Africa to the United States or from the Caribbean to the United States since the late 1960s have had no experience of things like Jim Crow. So that black and white narrative of race in America is irrelevant to these newer immigrants, and it's always been irrelevant to the Red Indians, who by the late 1960s were Native Americans. So what is America's politics since it became more of a democracy and started offering freedom to more of its people? Well, the biggest shift is in political discourse, like I said. It's changing and it's changed and you know, in a democracy everywhere, it changes. In America, it's become more polarized. And every year, makes it more and more polarized. In 2016, in the 2016 election, presidential election, though Hillary Clinton conceded to Donald Trump, the machine, the deep state machinery, still continued to delegitimize the sitting president for his entire 2017 to 2021 tenure. So when the time came after the 2020 election, it should have come as no surprise that the same thing happened in reverse. This is a trend to keep an eye on also, because once you start something, the chances of gaining momentum only continues. I mention that because I think that the political polarization is real and is something of some concern for all parties concerned. But before I continue, some boring stuff. It's good to know, but it's not critical. 
The US is a republic. I understand it's a republic under God for all people, but that's if you believe there's a God. It's a constitutional republic and it's a representative democracy. The head of state is the same person as the head of government. It's a presidential system of government. The US has a Congress that works somewhat like a parliament. Like the Roman Republic had senators, the US also has senators who sit in a Congress and they have congressmen too. So it's a hodgepodge of stuff. The states do their own things and they have their own legislatures and they have their own Congress and their governors and so on and so forth. So there is democracy at multiple levels, but there is no direct democracy. I mean, you don't vote for the law that you want. You vote for the representative who votes for the law that they would like for you. Also, the government is considered slightly different or separate to what they call the administration. The government is the entire deep state machinery. That's the civil service and so on. The layer above that is not permanent. It is known as the administration. These are people appointed to temporary roles by the president of the day. It includes everything from ambassadors to other countries and cabinet members, junior cabinet members, and so on and so forth. So it's a lot of people that need to get appointed every four or eight years. If the president, therefore, is named Bush, say, then the administration is called the Bush administration. It's simply the people Bush put into place to run stuff per the Bush agenda. It's certainly part of government, but it's just political appointees in those roles, not the lifelong deep state. Hope that makes sense. What else do you need to know? Ah, yes, there are just two main political parties. One is called the Republican Party or the GOP, Grand Old Party. The other one is called the Democratic Party. Republicans are considered more conservative and to the right. The Democrats more left-leaning, at least in the US, it's known as liberal or progressive. I know that's confusing. So the choice for the voter is binary. Not to say that there are broad views and differences inside these parties. The ultimate truth for the voter, though, is that you have to pick one candidate from just two. It's like Coke and Pepsi. A voter can actually register early as a Democrat or Republican. Unlike in India, for example, where membership of a party is one thing, in the US, you can register your intentions as a Democrat or Republican with the government itself. And in advance, you can also register as an independent. Once you have registered as a Democrat or Republican, or both, you can get involved in what the parties call primaries. So in a primary, you can vote for who you think should be the national, state, or district candidate. Most people should or would be familiar with the presidential primaries. They go on for a very long time. A very, very long time. Each state will have its own primary. It's a grueling and painful process. The primary is combined with the election campaign itself. Once they do that, you can expect a, a sort of an election schedule for an entire year. It's noteworthy in the time frame, which is highly unusual. Also, once the elections are done, each district and state has its own counting process. That means there is no national election commission that oversees the election. Often, people with political agendas of their own oversee elections. Many districts and states, even those with low populations, take several days, and I mean sometimes weeks, to get to a result. I can't imagine how this is considered normal in the US when even in a country like India, where there are millions or more people, the results are pretty much in by the next day or certainly within 48 hours. Okay, so back to registering as a Democrat or Republican. 
other really interesting thing about Democrats and Republicans, unlike in many other, or indeed in any other country, is that the internal election, the internal election to select the party leader of that party, i.e. to select, say, the presidential nominee for the Democrats and the Republicans, these are sent as ballots to the party members who have registered as Democrats and Republicans. But that ballot, that vote mechanism is organized and assembled by the government itself. Yes, it's really weird. So in the UK, say, for example, the Conservative Party needs a new leader. The Conservative Party does the whole balloting and the canvassing and all of that. In the US, it's the government itself. Let me repeat, in the US dual party system, the state sends the ballots to select the party nominee. The ballot looks just like a general election ballot, but it's the primary ballot. Okay. Now, it's a system and all systems are flawed. But having the state intervene on behalf of just two parties, he makes this duopoly firmer and will force those parties to never, ever, ever give up that power. That means if you are a third party, the chances of you rising to the national level are zero to very, very remote. Once the long election has concluded and the long accounting has taken place, media companies with tentacles in the states will likely, and I air quote, call an election. Some of it is based on exit polls, others on other factors like previous voting history. But before all the votes are counted, the media houses call a district or state. They do so and they get that through assumptions. And sometimes those assumptions are wrong. So the call can be wrong. And this is how candidates ultimately decide next steps. And what are those next steps? The candidate, if he or she is the loser, will call the winner and concede. That seals the deal. The system then has a number of buffer weeks, often a couple of months, before the new person is installed as the president, governor, or whatever. The cycle then repeats itself. I'm going to end soon, but I do want to spend a few minutes just clarifying some terms and things that you may have heard of if you live outside the U.S. So one is the uniparty. The uniparty is a name used to describe politicians across the duo of parties who agree on most things. So stuff like war, they typically agree on. The military-industrial complex, they typically agree on. You know, stuff that they cross party lines agree on. Then you would have heard the term rhinos, R-I-N-O-S. These are Republicans in name only. They are Republicans who spend a lot of time voting with Democrats. Then there are dinos, D-I-N-O-S. These are Democrats in name only. They are Democrats who spend a lot of time voting with Republicans. A rhino or a dino, say in the United Kingdom, would probably have a third party all to themselves. But in the duopolistic US system, they have to pick one of the two parties to go into action. Otherwise, they face political blip. So trends. Now, Every country is polarized, but in the U.S., it's so much so that Democrats will tell you that they will not go to X state because it is a Republican state, and a Republican may say that they would not marry a Democrat. They would only marry another Republican. Families have become torn because of Republicans and Democrats, and friendships have ended of all things due to politics. You may or may not see much difference between the two parties. As I said, there's a uniparty idea concept. The discussion, I think, is somewhat mute between the two, or it could be. Democrats, 
you could argue, are nothing but less honest Republicans. The Republicans are at least honest, I would say. I'm never sure, ultimately, if there's a huge difference between the two parties. I mean, occasionally you'll have an outsider like a Ron Paul or a Donald Trump. You can be completely outside, but you'd have to work within the party system to get anywhere. Is that different from any other country? I don't know. The U.S. ultimately, though, and this is really important, I go back to the top, the U.S. still has the first and second opinion. And that does protect its citizens from what has become, since September 11th, a huge government, a mass surveillance security state, and domestic spying through the media act nothing ever. And the only country comparable is probably the People's Republic of China. Oh, and race has become a political hot potato, like I said. The other hot potato is God versus God versus fetus abortions, also known as Roe v. Wade. Even I don't understand that one. To me, all this stuff like Roe v. Wade and race is nothing but a distraction to what, to me, is ultimately the real issue. And that is of foreign intervention, not to protect the U.S., but to profiteer the military industry, politicians, and that is ultimately a tragedy. While people are too busy looking at Roe v. Wade, one million Iraqis died in Iraq. <laughs>